And speaking of perspectives, that's what we're looking at is the kingdom of God and priorities concerning the kingdom of God through the parabolic ministry, the parabolic teaching of Jesus. So if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 13. If you're um, perhaps just joining us this evening in the summer, uh, we, uh, we began by looking at the nature of the kingdom of God, just to introduce the concept of the kingdom of God. Uh, we continued uh, by going to uh, Luke chapter 8, where we realized that the kingdom of God spreads through the message of the gospel. It meets with differing responses. Uh, we've taken a look at the mercy of the kingdom as conveyed in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We've looked at kingdom building, God-centered prayer. In Luke chapter 11, last week in chapter 12, we looked at the rich fool and uh, realized that the um, life does not consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. But we're to call to find our treasure in Christ, whom to know is life, life more abundantly and life eternal. This week in chapter 13, we're going to look at the barren fig tree, and we'll start in verse 1, we'll go down through um, verse 9. There were present at that season some who were told about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and kill them, do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, then cut it down. September 11th, 2001 marked one of the greatest tragedies, certainly in recent memory in American history. Some 3,000 plus people met their death in a savage, barbaric, premeditated attack. And we still feel the effects of that in some measure even today. Um, I well remember, um, it's one of those events in history that you recall where you were. I remember listening to the radio coming from lunch in Overton Square, and it must have been 1981, in the spring of 1981, I had had lunch at the Bombay Bicycle Club. Anybody remember the Bombay Bicycle Club? Boy, has the Overton Square changed or what? You know, we left Memphis 18 years ago and we come back and there's hardly any Overton Square. But I was stopped at the traffic lights at Cooper um, and I saw a purse snatching on one corner and on the radio listening to the top of the hour news had just heard that President Reagan had been shot. I still remember being in elementary, in, in elementary school and hearing the news that President Ken, Kennedy had been shot and assassinated. It's just one of those events that you recall where you were when you received that kind of news. On the morning of September 11, 2001, I was coming from Quest Laboratory where my doctor had sent me to have blood drawn for an annual physical and I was listening to news radio when I heard the news. I went to the church. We found an old black and white TV. We turned it on in time to see the second plane crash into the tower. 
And undoubtedly, you remember where you were. The memory of that still lingers in our minds. In the summer of 2003, Melinda, uh, Jenny, Ryan, and I vacationed in Manhattan, a great place to visit, but I'm not sure I'd want to live there. In fact, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't want to live there. But a great place to visit. And to see that gaping hole where the towers once stood is really staggering to consider. There are tragedies that happen all around the world on nearly every day and every month of every year. There are mudslides in California. There are wildfires out west. There are avalanches in the Rockies. There are plane crashes, large and small. All kinds of things happen around the world. December the 26th, 2004, there was a 9.3 earthquake uh, the magnitude of 9.3 that sent a tsunami around the rim of the Indian Ocean and approximately 300,000 people met a horrific death in light of this great tragedy. It was two tragedies that formed the backdrop of Jesus' observation in this passage that we just read. And in His observations regarding this, these two tragedies and the parable that follows this, There is a timeless warning, a timeless and urgent call that comes in every generation to repent or else. And might we see that first of all this evening in in the call to repentance. Uh, The historical occasions here serve as pointed reminders of an urgent and timeless call that comes to each one of us and comes in every generation, repent or perish. Uh, The story is told here, the historical incidents rather that are referred to to here, first of all, take place in verse 1 when there were some Galileans who were in a place of worship and uh, Pilate had ordered their murder apparently and they were murdered and their blood was mingled with the sacrifices. And the question is posed to Jesus. The implication of the statement to Jesus is what horrific sinners these people must have been to have suffered such calamity and such tragedy. And Jesus' response in verse 3 says, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered these things? Do you suppose it's because they were horrifically wicked people that this kind of calamitous event occurred to them? Do you suppose it's because they were heinous and perverse people that this kind of judgment fell on them? Well, many believe that calamity was the result of divine displeasure. They believe that calamitous events did happen because God had placed someone in the crosshairs of His judgment and behind the insinuation of this question is that wicked people do suffer horrifically and what they they really were aiming at here was some kind of self-righteous smugness. Do you see how those people suffered? They must have been great sinners and by the way, they probably had it coming to them. And Jesus turns that on them and says, Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? And then in verse 3, he says, No, I, I tell you the truth. Unless you repent, you will perish. It's a call to repentance. I think we ought to be really, really careful about tying calamitous events to great sin and great wickedness have to be really, really careful about that. Only the Bible can do that with unerring precision, and it does that. Only in Scripture are we given insight into calamitous events and their explanation or their application. For example, 
We're told that the, the imagination of man's heart was evil in Genesis 3, and God warned of a flood, and a flood came. So it's right to say that God judged that generation in a catastrophic event like the flood. We're right to draw the conclusion of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah because that's the explanation that the Bible gives it. We're right to draw the conclusion that Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 were judged and fell dead because they had lied to the Holy Spirit because that's the explanation that the Bible gives it. We're right in Acts 12 to come away with the conclusion that a pompous and proud Herod was stricken and smitten by the hand of God and his body was consumed by worms because that's the application that the Bible gives it. But we ought to be very slow and very cautious about finding in calamitous events today some connection to the wickedness of other people. And I'll tell you why. Because what Jesus, I think, is really saying in verse 3 is that apart from the grace and mercy of God that brings us to repentance... We all deserve a calamitous outcome. We all deserve some kind of calamitous judgment in our own lives. Jesus is saying that you're no worse than all other Galileans. And he punctuates that in verse 3 with this application. Unless you repent, you will perish. John Piper said this, Instead of being amazed that sinful humans perish, be amazed that you haven't. Be amazed that you haven't. Because I'm not a worse um, sinner. They weren't worse, 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 pardon me. I've got a mint in my mouth. Um, and I'll try not to whistle when I speak. Because uh, we should not draw the conclusion that we are less sinners than these Galileans. No, the call to repentance comes in every generation for good reason. Because the Bible says that we've all sinned and we've all come short of the glory of God. Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, I was walking across uh, the UT Martin campus one time where I was involved in campus ministry and I was um, walking across the campus with an Episcopal rector. And um, there was an English professor with whom uh, I was acquainted and, and I'd made the statement that he requires uh, his freshmen to read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I'll never forget the rector said, I detest that sermon because of its frightful images. If you've ever read the sermon, the sermon is indeed filled with frightful images. It makes the case that all of us are dangling over a fiery abyss held by a, uh, by a slim, slim spider's web. We all are, as it were, in the crosshairs of an arrow that God has drawn of His judgment. We are walking as if on rotted planks over the fires of God's judgment and God's abyss, and we threaten to break through at any moment and be plunged headlong in a Christless hell for all eternity. Frightful images, indeed. What Jesus is saying, that apart from the grace that leads us to repentance, we would all perish. There's another tragedy that's referred to here by Jesus Himself. In verse 4, a tower fell. And uh, people were killed. The tower in Siloam fell in the outskirt of Jerusalem. Eighteen people were plunged to their death. <clears throat> Again, it's a, it's a reminder to come to repentance. It's a reminder to cast ourselves on the mercies of God in Christ. And I would suggest to you this evening that in every disaster, in every calamity, in every tragedy, there is that call 
to repentance, to examine our hearts, to examine our lives, to know but for the grace of God, but for the mercy of God, we would experience the same kind of fate. There, I, I also think in a very real way, whether it's the, the, the Galileans' blood being mingled with their sacrifices, whether it's the tower falling on those who had gathered in Siloam, or whatever other event you may see, there is in a very small but a very real way the promise, the portent of a coming and unescapable divine judgment. In a very small way, but nevertheless a very real way, there is the portent, the promise, the shadow of a coming final judgment from which there is no escape. Luke chapter 12, Jesus says that His coming would be like a thief in the night. That is, it would catch people unawares. We could turn over to Luke chapter 17, and He says that as it was in the days of Noah, people were eating, and people were drinking, and people were giving in marriage, and they did not know until it was everlastingly too late that judgment would come. Jesus says that prior to His coming... It will be as it was in the days of Lot. People were eating and people were drinking and people were giving in marriage until fire fell from heaven and it was everlastingly too late. It's interesting to me that in in two of the most well-known stories of temporal judgment in the Bible, the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus applies those to a coming day of His return and a future day of great peril and judgment. Maybe in some real way, every calamitous event, every tragedy is a reminder of our mortality, of our own need to examine our hearts and to repent and to humble ourselves before the Lord. And it's a reminder of a coming day of judgment. John Calvin, in one of his commentaries, said, All the calamities that happen in the world are testimonies of the wrath of God. Death is the wages of sin. And yet Hebrews Chapter 9, verse 27 says that after death, there is what? There is a judgment. After death, there is a judgment. And we will face that judgment. And we will perish in that judgment. Unless the grace of God brings us to see our sin and moves us to repentance. Um, I don't know if it's in our Trinity hymnals that are in the back of our hymn rack. I didn't check that. But um, perhaps many of you are familiar with the hymn, Search Me, O God. Uh, it's written by J. Edwin Orr. J. Edwin Orr was a historian of revival, and that is a revival-oriented hymn, calling upon the Lord, as the psalmist did in Psalm 139, to search me and see if there's any wicked way in me. J. Edwin Orr, years ago, said repentance is the missing theme, the missing ingredient in much evangelical preaching. And yet, apart from repentance, we will all, Likewise perish. The Bible teaches that repentance is not just a a fleeting emotion of remorse. It's not just a a ritualistic, half-hearted confession of sin. But I like the way the Westminster Confession of Faith defines uh, repentance. It says it's an evangelical grace. It just means it's the grace of God that comes to us in the proclamation of the gospel. And we see our sin for what it is. We see the blackness of it. We see the odious nature of it before a holy God. So on the one hand, we see the awfulness of sin. 
And on the other hand, we apprehend God's mercies to us in Christ. And seeing our sin and God's only remedy for sin, the Savior of sinners, even the Lord Jesus Christ, through the convictional work of the Holy Spirit, leads us and moves us to grieve for our sin and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus mentioned two words in this text that would indicate our need for repentance. Not just those who suffered an awful fate in Galilee, not just those who were crushed by the Tower of Siloam, but all of us. Those two words are found, one of those words rather is found in verse 2, where the Bible calls us sinners. Now, if you've been at grace for any length of time, I don't have to convince you of that. You've heard that over and over. You've heard the gospel over and over. But it's interesting to me, the words that the Bible uses for sin and sinners in the Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, it uses words like disobedience. It uses words like offense, transgression, and rebellion. Graphic words that talk about twisting the ways of God, that talk about stepping beyond the boundaries of that which He has commanded or that which He has prohibited. You and I know that we can sin by omission. We can fail to do what the Lord has called us to do. Uh, I would illustrate like this. This is the way I illustrate it in chapter 2. By the way, it's good to see you guys back from Alaska. Uh, this is how I illustrate it in chapter 2. I'm not proud of this, but it's as honest truth. I've had several speeding tickets in my driving career. And each one of those tickets has been... And I'm looking right in the eyes of a Memphis policeman when I say this. Keith Morris. Got your ticket book here tonight? <laughs> um, every time I've been ticketed, it's because I exceeded the speed limit. I did more than was required. <laughs> it's just the kind of guy I am. But you know there is a minimum speed um, on the interstate? It's 40 mile an hour. I've never been ticketed for failing to do the minimum. I would illustrate that by simply saying I've been guilty of the sins of commission. I've driven too fast. I've never been guilty of the sin of omission, failing to go fast enough. And yet because we're sinners, not only do we fail to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and being, not only do we fail to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, but we fail to do that in our mind, our thoughts, our will, our intentions, our motivations, we do it all the time. That's why the Bible says that we must repent. If you have an NIV Bible, in verse 4, the word is going to be guilty. It's going to be guilty. That simply means that we owe a debt we cannot pay. I do not have the resources. I do not have the resources to pay off my fines in the court of heaven. I just don't. I think that's why the first value of the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. He defines poverty there as being poor in spirit. Not materially poor, not financially poor, but blessed are the poor in spirit. And the word poor, potakos, means beggarly. No resources whatsoever. And that's the way we are before the court of heaven. Guilty. And no resources to pay the fines, or to pay off the judge, or to bargain with God. We are spiritually poor. And repentance means that we admit that we are condemned justly before the perfectly holy God for the sins we've committed, the actions that we have performed, and the things that we have not done but should have. 
Repentance means I turn from myself. I turn to God for the mercy He offers through Christ. I turn from sin to God. I turn from guilt to grace. I turn from unbelief to faith. And I lay hold of all that He's promised to me in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying to that generation, and He's saying to everyone in every generation, that unless you repent, you will perish. Might we see in the tragedies in this text, this historical backdrop, a reminder of our own mortality and that we are utterly dependent upon providence every day. Might we see in the tragedies then and now a coming day of divine judgment. And might we see in those tragedies then and now an urgent call to repentance. Second in this text, notice not only the call to repentance, but it's followed by a call to bear fruit. And that's the parable of the barren fig tree. This gives you the backdrop for the parable because the parable reinforces the call to repentance. Jesus makes a comparison between people and fig trees and barren fig trees. And he's pointing out to a fig tree that's in a vineyard that fails to produce fruit. The owner of the vineyard looks for fruit, but there's none. And the owner said, cut it down. Cut it down. It is of no use whatsoever. And but for the pleading and the intercession of the vine dresser, the vineyard keeper, that is exactly what would have happened. A few weeks ago, I think about two Sundays ago, Dr. Young had returned along with uh, the senior high group from Destin, and uh, he had us open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, Israel is compared to a vineyard. There are two prominent images that allude to Israel in the Bible. One of those is a vineyard, and that's Isaiah chapter 5 which the Lord says, I come to my vineyard and I've looked for fruit, but there is none. And therefore God promises judgment. But a second image that the Bible uses often for God's Old Testament church, His Old Testament people Israel, is that of a fig tree. And you'll find that example here. I believe if you and I were to look at the immediate historical context, Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem. He's on His way to the cross He is culminating about three years of ministry in which He has done the work of the kingdom. He's done incredible signs and wonders and miracles. The calling card of the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 35. They've heard the message of the kingdom. They've heard the call to repentance. And now Jesus set His face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He tells this parable and He singles out a fig tree in the midst of this vineyard that is barren and He promises judgment unless there's fruit. Israel is often compared to a fig tree. The immediate context, I think, then would be Israel. Jesus is telling this in the, in the shadow of Jerusalem, if you will, to a very religious people who had all the pomp and the ceremony and the religious rituals. But Jesus would say of them, they drew near to me with their lips, but their heart was far from me. And so the immediate application in the parable of the barren fig tree would be to the nation of Israel. Short time after this, Matthew 21 records it, Luke doesn't. Jesus would be in Jerusalem and He would come to a fig tree 
and it would be barren. And He would curse that fig tree. And it would wither before their very eyes. And He would say, let no fruit come from you hereafter. And it withered. The third year of ministry would culminate in a promise of coming judgment to the nation of Israel. Now, we don't have time for this. And I'm not going to take time for us to turn over there and look at it. But in Luke 17, the Lord is talking about judgment. And you, you realize the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four witnesses, they often see a single event from different perspectives and they will give you different insights on the same perspective. It's like Jesus' life and ministry in stereo and they're the four speakers. And so they will give you a different perspective. Luke doesn't go into this extended detail, but Matthew 23 does, where Jesus pronounces a series of woes upon the Pharisees, the scribes, and the lawyers. And he culminates and he says this. He says, I will leave your house desolate. And it means empty and without a sound. And folks, that happened in 70 A.D. when Titus came in with the 10th legion. And not one stone was left upon another so that 2,000 plus years later there's not been a sacrifice offered in Jerusalem. And that temple has remained barren and empty in fulfillment of the words of Jesus. You remember in the, the, the great scene, perhaps you saw the passion of Christ, but you remember the great scene where Jesus is standing before Pilate and the priests and the religious leaders are given an opportunity to accept Barabbas or to accept Christ. And Pilate said, which will you take? And they said, give us Barabbas. And they said, what of this man? They said, crucify him, crucify him. And he said, Pilate said, should I crucify this man, this just man? And they said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And oh, God, was it. Titus crucified so many people, there was no wood left in the surrounding hills of Jerusalem. I believe this parable finds its immediate historical application and its context in the life of Israel. He came looking for repentance and there was none. Israel failed to bring forth the fruits of repentance. And if you'll hold your place here in Luke 13, turn back with me for just a minute to Luke chapter 11, would you? Luke chapter 11, I'd really like for you to see this. Um, Jesus has started his, um, his denunciation of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. In Luke chapter 11, verse 37, and I'm going to hurry so we can get this in. He, he spoke, uh, Luke eleven thirty seven. he spoke a certain, as he spoke a certain Pharisee, asked him to dine with him and so on. And, uh, and this is the context. Uh, Jesus had not washed before dinner. It wasn't a hygiene problem, it was a ceremonial problem. Um, and Jesus uses this occasion to begin to pronounce woes upon the Pharisees. For example, verse 42, woe to you Pharisees. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees. Verse 44, woe to you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 46, woe to you also lawyers. Verse 47, woe to you. It's a lamentation. It is a, it is a cry of impending judgment. Woe, woe, woe. And he spells out the reasons for the woe. Now look at this, verse 49. 
Well, I tell you what, let's go to verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple, yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation." This parable and the greater context of the parable applied to Israel. I want, you to, I want you to get this. In Exodus 34, the Lord promised that He would visit judgment to the third and fourth generation of those who hated Him. Jesus promises judgment here to a hundred generations. Because he goes all the way back to the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 4 to Abel. And he goes all the way to the end of the Hebrew Old Testament, which ends in Second Chronicles, to a man by the name of Zechariah. And he's saying all the righteous people of the Old Testament period to Abel until Zechariah, I will require their blood at this generation because I came looking for the fruits of repentance and there was none and 2,000 years later, folks, that desolate temple still stands as a monument to Luke 13, repent or perish. But I don't think the application is exhausted there. Turn back to Luke 13 very quickly. I don't think the application is exhausted there, just with Israel. Because bearing fruit is an important test of authentic faith in Christ. Matthew 7, Jesus said, you'll know my followers by their fruit. And the Bible calls God's people in every age to bear the fruits of repentance. We're called a growing obedience and a growing and increasing um, ability to deal with sin in an appropriate manner. We're called to bear the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And Paul prayed for the followers of Christ at Colossae to be fruitful in every good work. This fruit's a result of being in vital union with Christ. You don't command fruit. Fruit is produced as a result of being united to the Lord Jesus Christ. John 15, Abide in me, and I in you, that you may bear much fruit, because by this the Father is glorified. The stunning truth is that God judges trees that are fruitless. In verse 7, Luke 13, He said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this tree and find none. Cut it down. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? Jesus' statement is joined. This parable joins. The statement in this parable joins it to the two pleas for repentance. Fruit or perish. Fruit or perish. Because repentance is leaked with Fruit. It's a change of life. Repentance is a change of life by the grace of God in Christ that leads to bearing fruit. And the owner of the vineyard finds none and therefore promises judgment unless there is fruit. Because a bad tree that bears no fruit will be cut down. It's true of Israel. I think you'd agree to that. In Revelation 
In Revelation chapters uh, 2 and 3, it's true of at least five of seven churches, the churches of Asia, five of whom were commanded to repent. And it's true of those today who profess, who profess a faith that they do not possess because fruit is a sign of life. Very quickly in closing, the call to repentance becomes a call to bear fruit. But in verses 8 and 9, there is a compassionate delay. The parable closes with the words of the keeper of the vineyard, protesting the destruction of the tree and pleading for more time. Verse 8, Sir, let it alone. Let it alone this year until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not after that, you can cut it down. The parable closes with these words. And I think it implies this. As long as there's breath, there's time for mercy and grace. As long as there's physical life, there's time to repent. But I think it also says this. There is a everlastingly too late. One year. However long, I don't know. But there's still time now to repent. Still time to embrace Christ. Still time to bear the fruits of repentance. Still time to seek the Lord while He may be found. Still time to call upon the Lord while He is near because He's rich to all who call upon Him in faith. There may be a caution here as well. And that is, don't mistake the delay for presumption and an unwillingness of God to judge. Don't mistake the delay for an unwillingness of God to judge. Fruitless trees will inevitably be cut down and come to judgment. The only explanation then for the delay is simply this, God's mercy and God's compassion. Second Peter chapter 3 says that in the last days there are going to be mockers who will come and say, where is the promise of His coming? All things are as they are since the beginning of the world. And Peter says, don't discount or don't count the slowness of God as slackness. But he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The delay is a matter of mercy. It's not an unwillingness to judge. In this story, this parable, the fig tree had only one hope. The intercession, the pleading of the keeper of the vineyard. And you and I, have only one hope as well. The intervention of Christ and God's mercy to us in Christ. The barren fig tree stands as a monument and illustrates this. Repent. Repent or perish because there will be a coming day of judgment. Our merciful Savior of sinners spoke about hell and about a coming judgment more than any other person in the Scripture. And I don't think the metaphors do it justice. It's a place where there's weeping, where there's wailing, where there's gnashing of teeth, where the fire is not extinguished and the worm does not end. And so every generation needs to hear this. I need to hear it. Repent or perish. May God have mercy 
May God have mercy upon us and upon those to whom He sends us to share the message of the kingdom, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we are grateful indeed for Your mercy and uh, know that it's only because of Your compassions that we're not consumed. But Your faithfulness is great to us and Your compassions toward us are renewed day by day. Uh, May we hear in these ancient words a timeless application. Might we be moved to see in uh, today's tragedies uh, both your goodness as well as your severity. Might it be a reminder that we are mortals and that our life is dependent solely upon your providences to us. Might it also be a reminder, a call for us to examine our hearts and to make our calling and election sure Might it also be an incentive to preach the gospel, to share the gospel in word and deed while there is yet time because there will be a day that it will be everlastingly too late. Have mercy upon us for Christ's sake in whose name we pray. Amen.